Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, we have an exciting series for you guys to kind of take your minds off COVID for a little bit. Uh, Patrick Georgioff, a uh, trauma fellow, soon to be a trauma surgeon, put together a fantastic series of 10 episodes that he's going to describe to you in a little detail. Before we dive into that, uh, I just want to give you a quick heads up about this new collaboration we have with uh, the Resident Association for Surgeons. Um, Megan, can you tell us uh, what's going on? Yeah, Kevin, really excited about the trauma series here. Um, but before we get into that, the BTK has uh, combined with the Resident uh, and Associate Society of the ACS to create a journal cast on our YouTube channel, which discusses the landmark and seminal papers in surgery. Um, and we're basically trying to get you within a five minute video the most clinically relevant information on these papers so that you don't have to sit through and read lengthy papers and read through all the methods and everything and try to figure out what is important for you on your rotations or in practice. So we hope this is beneficial to you. Yeah, one thing I find really uh, beneficial about these is they're the landmark papers. So they might not be the papers that you're discussing in your journal clubs every week, but it's the it's the foundations for which all these other studies uh, have been brought and, and, and really summarize it nicely within five minutes. Yeah. And if you want to find the first four videos that we've uh, posted are on our YouTube channel, you can search for Behind the Knife. And within our playlist, we've compiled it um, in a playlist called Landmark Papers Journal Cast. Um, and you should be able to uh, find all four videos right there. Welcome to the very first episode of the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. This series will offer clinically oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. The information presented in this podcast is designed for surgical trainees, but is appropriate for anyone with an interest in trauma surgery. This includes medical students, advanced practice providers, and nurses. Topics that we will cover include whole blood, neck injuries, rib plating, junctional hemorrhage, gun violence, and even end-of-life care. My name is Patrick Georgioff. I'm a trauma surgery fellow at the University of Texas Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today, I'm joined by Jane McCauley, who's also a trauma surgery fellow at the University of Texas in Houston. In this first episode, we're going to cover neck trauma. Hi, Patrick. I'm very honored to be with you today to cover this first podcast. I've been a very loyal behind-the-knife follower for some time, and it's a great honor to be your co-fellow, and Yay. I appreciate you I'm allowing me to, uh, to do this with you. So uh, yeah, today we're going to do our best to break down these topics in a clear and concise manner. Um, we've got a couple of cases for you today that highlight the key principles of managing neck injuries. So our first case, okay, if I'm everyone's ready. ready. I'm ready. 
Okay, so Patrick, you got a 24-year-old woman, and she is in a high-speed MVC. She has a GCS of 7 at the scene and is intubated. Her primary and secondary surveys are notable only for facial lacerations and palpable facial fractures. Um, she has some rib fractures on the chest x-ray, but is otherwise stable enough for CT scan. Um, so what kind of images are you going to get? All right, good question. So I'm going to start with a head, neck, chest, abdomen, and pelvis. But I think what you're getting at is whether or not we should think about some specialized imaging beyond the PAN scan. Yeah, exactly. Um, so more specifically, um, what patients are at high enough risk so that a diagnostic evaluation should be pursued for screening and diagnosis of blunt cerebral vascular injury? That's really my question. Right. So we're talking about blunt cerebral vascular injury. So uh, first we need to rule out uh, uh, signs or symptoms of blunt cerebral vascular injury or BCVI, which is what we're going to refer to it as throughout the episode. So this is the obvious stuff like hemorrhage or an expanding hematoma a brewery, or focal neurologic deficits. These are all things uh, that we can determine on a comprehensive secondary survey. And, yeah, that's right. So um, I want you to remember that if they're unstable, you're going to go straight to the OR, not the CT scanner. But for our patient that we're talking about, she is going to go to the CT scanner. All right. And for patients that don't have obvious signs of injury, there's a laundry list of different injuries that put a patient at higher risk for BCBI. These include a higher energy transfer mechanism, like a car crash or a fall from height, that is associated with a displaced mid-face fracture, specifically Lefort 2 or 3, mandible fractures, skull fracture, including the occipital condyle, a closed head injury with a GCS less than 6, cervical subluxation or ligamentous injury, cervical spine fracture, TBI with thoracic injuries, thoracic vascular injury, and clothesline or seatbelt injury with neck pain, swelling, or altered, altered mental status, and lastly, hanging accidents. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a pretty long list of indications, Patrick. How do you remember them all? Well, I don't, and I can't. And so I keep the algorithm from Dr. Uh, Brulu et al.'s uh, 2012 uh, J-Trauma paper that's titled Blunt Cerebral Vascular Injuries, Redefining Screening Criteria in the Area of Non-Invasive Diagnosis. I take a, I have a picture from one of the tables there on my phone. And, you know, once the patient's all settled in the trauma bay and I need to order my scans, I'll pull that up, take a look, and see if this person meets any of the criteria uh, for screening for BCVI. If so, order that CTA of the neck. Uh, that's a pretty good idea, Patrick. Can you send that to me when you get a chance so I can put it on my absolutely, own phone? Absolutely, absolutely. Great. So um, the screening criteria can be simplified as well. If the patient has had a high energy mechanism of injury and his face, skull, or C-spine fractures or has a bad TBI all by itself or a TBI with associated chest trauma, they should all get worked up. Yeah. Okay. So you said a high energy mechanism of injury, right, which, again, big falls, big motor vehicle crashes, and they have something wrong with their face. They got face, face fractures, skull fractures, or C-spine fractures. They get a scan. Mm -hmm. Or they have a high energy mechanism of injury and they have a bad TBI all by itself, mm -hmm. again, a severe, severe TBI, or TBI with chest trauma. So those right. are kind of three big categories. If you don't have the list in front of you, they fall in one of those categories, go ahead and, and, and screen them for BCVI. And, and, and probably against also included on that is certainly if they've had a seatbelt that crosses their neck and they have symptoms or they have a huge seatbelt sign there or it, a hanging type of accident, you're definitely going to want to uh, scan them. Yeah, completely agree. Um, so what kind of imaging do you get then? Right, and I think I mentioned this before, so a CTA of the neck. 
What about ultrasound? Yeah, not not for this. So the sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound to pick up traumatic BCVI um, are, is not high enough. And so we, we do not use ultrasound on the regular. Right, right. And we should mention that angiography is the gold standard, but really not practical in most cases. Um, so, okay, so you get a CTA on this patient, and it is read as a grade 2 injury of the right common carotid. What does that mean, Patrick? Well, grading is uh, completed in accordance with a scale put out by Dr. Biffle uh, et al. in a J-trauma paper in 1999, and there are five grades of injury. So a grade 1 injury is defined as an intimal irregularity or dissection with less than 25% luminal narrowing, whereas a grade 2 injury consists of dissection or intramural hematomas with greater than or equal to 25% luminal narrowing or intraluminal clot or a visible intimal flap. Grade 3 includes a pseudoaneurysm or hemodynamically insignificant AV fistula. Grade 4 occurs when there's a complete occlusion of the vessel. And finally, grade 5 is a transection of the vessel with active hemorrhage or a hemodynamically significant arteriovenous fistula. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so this grading is important to talk about because there is an increasing risk of stroke for higher grades of carotid injury. And interestingly, the stroke risk for vertebral artery injuries are independent of grade. That's interesting. Uh, So, right, so that's true. So, uh, retrospective studies show stroke rates of 8% for grade 1 injuries and up to 50% for grade 5 injuries, excuse me, grade 4 injuries. Uh, But let's take a step back for a minute and talk about the pathophysiology. Uh, So, in most cases, the insult results in an intimal tear, and the exposed uh, subendothelial collagen promotes platelet aggregation and thrombus formation. And this uh, may occlude the vessel altogether, or it could embolize to the cerebral circulation. That's right. And it's important to note that there may be no neurological deficits on arrival. In fact, up to half of patients develop neurological symptoms greater than 12 hours after the injury. And most strokes occur between 12 hours and three days after injury. So it's important to remember that when you admit these patients. Sure. Okay. Um, And so, Jane, how do we treat BCVI? Well, For injuries grade 2 to 5, you can operate. Okay, but that doesn't happen much, does it? No. That's because few injuries are surgically accessible, as the vast majority occur at the skull base. Um, But injuries can also be stented. But remember that patients would have to be able to be on antithrombotic therapy. So that rules out any patients with other significant injuries. Um, Finally, you can treat with antithrombotic therapy alone. This is the most common approach. Okay, so um, uh, the most common approach, but the most common uh, uh, or optimal drug regimen and duration is actually not known, right? Right. The three um, most common antithrombotic treatments are heparin drip with a goal PTT of 40 to 50, uh, aspirin 325 milligrams daily, or Plavix 75 milligrams daily. Um, But there are no randomized trials directly comparing heparin with antiplatelet therapy. However, there is a small retrospective case series suggesting that antiplatelet therapy may be at least as effective as systemic heparinization for stroke prevention. Right. And we should mention that there is a very real evolution of injuries over time. So follow-up imaging 7 to 10 days after the injury is actually recommended. Yeah, or earlier if there's a change in neurologic status. Right, right. Over half of grade 1 injuries may heal within 7 to to 10 days, while grade 2 injuries are particularly dynamic, uh, often improving or even worsening, which may prompt that intervention. Um, If 
the beef CVI is healed, antithrombotic treatment can be stopped. If not, treatment should continue with consideration for repeating that imaging at approximately three months. Okay. All right. So uh, I think that wraps up BCVI. Let's move on to a new case. So you have a patient who is stabbed in the neck. Uh, there is a wad of blood-soaked gauze over the injury, and they show up in a trauma bay. What are you going to do, Jane? Well, that answer is easy. Same way every time, Patrick. I'm going to perform an efficient primary survey to evaluate that patient. Exactly. So his airway is intact. Uh, he is breathing normally. He's hemodynamically stable, and he's neurologically intact. What if there's an impaled object? Are you going to remove it? Oh, no. No, leave it in place. And what if he arrives without a C collar? Are you going to rush to put one on? Not in the absence of neurological deficits, and um, not if it impedes my management. Um, cervical spine injury occurs in less than 2% of penetrating neck injuries, and if there is no neurological deficit on arrival, the chance of neurologic injury is remote. So no, I would not put that C-collar on. Okay. And what about probing the wound? Are you going to stick your finger in there and nug her <laughs> around a little bit? Yeah, I'm not going to advise that, Patrick, as this could definitely dislodge a clot and uh, that could lead to bleeding. Um, it is important to carefully examine the wound, um, but please don't probe it. Okay, exactly. And if you ascertain that the injury does not penetrate the platysma, then it's not a penetrating neck injury. And what if the patient really, really wants to sit up? Oh, please let him. His airway and breathing is... Um, probably compromised in that situation, uh, you can continue to evaluate him in the sitting position. Not every trauma patient has to be supine. Absolutely. Airway injury issues are common with penetrating neck injuries, and so you need to be ready to secure the, secure the airway, whether that's via endotracheal intubation or cricothyrotomy. Okay, Jane, so you take the bandage down and you see a two centimeter stab wound in zone two of the neck. It definitely penetrates the platysma, but there are no hard signs of vascular or aerodigestive injury. Okay, so you mentioned hard signs of injury, but let's talk about those hard signs first. So hard signs of vascular injury uh, include hemorrhage, a large expanding or pulsatile hematoma, bruise, an absent radial pulse due to a more proximal injury, and neurological deficits consistent with cerebral ischemia, like hemiplegia. Then there's the hard signs of aerodigestive injury, which would include air bubbling from the wound, hematemesis or hemoptysis, and respiratory distress. Okay, so hard signs are exam findings that, for the most part, confirm an injury to the vessels, the trachea, and or the esophagus. And so this is obviously very important, but Jane, what really determines what you're going to do next? Whether or not the patient is stable. So if they're unstable, they go straight to the OR. No questions. If they are stable, they go to the CT scanner. Right, exactly. And uh, this concept of stability, which requires careful consideration and is really informed mostly by experience, is a central theme to managing trauma patients. Because when evaluating a seriously injured patient, what it really boils down to is where you're going to go next from that trauma bay. Are you going to go to the CT scanner or to the OR? That's really kind of a, the only two choices you have, uh, again, in, in critically injured patients. So only stable patients should go to the scanner. Right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, the management of penetrating neck injury has really changed over the past few decades. Uh, the pendulum has swung from a predominantly watch and wait approach, which resulted in high mortality, to mandatory exploration, regardless of signs or symptoms, which resulted in decreased mortality, but high rates of negative exploration, to now a selective exploration based on stability, exam findings, and the neck zone where the injury occurred. 
uh, you mentioned neck zones. Let's let's pause real quick and review those zones of the neck. So um, zone one extends from the sternal notch to the cricoid. Zone two from the cricoid to the angle of the mandible. And zone three from the mandible to the skull base. So remember it in backwards order. From bottom to top, it goes from one to three. Injuries uh, to zone two are the most common. And overall, trachea or esophageal injuries account for about 10% of the total. Internal jugular injury is about 9%. Um, carotid, about 7%. Spinal cord, about 2 And vertebral artery at the lowest, 1%. Sure. Okay, so we determined that our patient is stable, and we want to get a CT of the neck with IV contrast. Uh, the sensitivity and specificity of a CTA of the neck for vascular injury approaches 100%, but it's less for tracheal or esophageal injury. So if there's concern for tracheal or esophageal injury, additional workup needs to be undertaken. And for esophageal injury, you could start with something like an esophagram, typically water-soluble contrast first, followed by thin barium if no injury is identified and you still have significant concern, uh, or you could go straight to EGD. Right. It's really critically important to rule out that esophageal injury quickly because a delay in the diagnosis and treatment does result in higher mortality. Yeah, that's a, a super key point. Uh, do not miss an esophageal injury. Right. All right. Uh, in regards to the trachea, so for evaluation of the trachea, that's a little easier. I mean, no swallows or anything like that. Just perform a bronch. And don't forget, you can also examine the trachea and the esophagus with your own eyes in the operating room. Yes, we are yes. surgeons. Heal with steel, Jane. Don't ever forget. Steel. Okay. And uh, let me pass along one pro tip as well. So when you're getting the CTA, uh, be sure to give the contrast through the arm opposite of the side of the injury. Uh, this will make it much easier to interpret the imaging. Okay, so Jane, let's say this guy has a transected internal jugular vein and a pseudoaneurysm of the common carotid artery without evidence of cerebral ischemia. Okay, that's good. Okay, so... And you go to the OR? Yeah, I go to the OR, okay, so 100%. The OR. Uh, first, I would position the patient with a bump under his shoulders. Um, then I would turn his head away from the injury and prep the neck, chest, and at least one leg for the purpose of harvesting a vein if you need it. Okay, good. And then what's your surgical approach to the injury? The most commonly incision is an oblique incision anterior to the sternocleidomastoid, and you can extend this into a collar-type incision as needed. I would get through the platysma. I would retract the sternocleidomastoid laterally, ligate the facial vein, and then I would visualize the carotid sheath at that point where I would want to identify the internal jugular laterally, the carotid medially, and the vagus nerve posteriorly. Excellent. And so what if all you see is a big old hematoma in the sheath? I would definitely want to get proximal and distal control before getting into that hematoma. Um, if the injury were in zone one, proximal control would require a median sternotomy. That's very important. If it were in zone three, I would have to try to dislocate the mandible or place an anti-grade embolectomy catheter. Those are bad locations. Right. So, right. Getting control of bleeding in zone one or three can be extremely challenging. It is extremely challenging. There's no, no way around three. it. All right. So you get proximal and uh, distal control, and you get into the hematoma, and you identify a completely transected IJ a transected external carotid artery, and a laceration encompassing 50% circumference of the common carotid artery. So what are you going to do? All right, so I would start with the common carotid. 
These injuries can be repaired primarily or with a bovine pericardial patch or with an interposition graft for which vein would be favored. And in this case, because it's a laceration type injury, I would try to primarily repair it with or without a patch. Right. Okay. And what about shunting? So shunts are not routinely used in trauma situations, although they should be considered in patients who are hypotensive or if there is poor back bleeding. It's really a matter of surgeon preference and experience, but it's also important to pass the embolectomy catheter proximally and distally to the repair to remove any clot prior to finishing that closure. Right. Okay. Um, And what about heparin? So systemic heparin should be used only in the absence of other hemorrhage, such as solid organ hemorrhage or an intracranial injury. Uh, If there's any concern whatsoever, it is totally acceptable not to use systemic heparin. Right. Okay. Um, And what are you going to do with that transected external carotid artery? Okay. Well, I could try to repair it, but the external carotids can be safely ligated. Um, On the other hand, ligating the internal carotid has subsequent stroke risk as high as 75%. So that's a little different. Yikes. Okay. Uh, So we're not ligating the internal carotid. All right. And how about the jugular vein? Are you going to ligate that or do you want to try to salvage it? Well, a singular jugular vein can be ligated without any sequelae, but should be repaired if that patient's condition really allows for it. Yeah. So, okay. Patient's condition allows for it. We're going to do a repair of the vein. All right. uh, Finally, here's a tough one for you. What if the patient has hemiplegia on exam? They have ischemia on the head CT and a known carotid injury. Do you move forward with the repair of that carotid? (laughs) Okay, so that's a tough one. Um, It's pretty controversial. I would probably err towards doing the repair, especially if the injury was recent, but would definitely load the boat, and I would make sure neurosurgery weighs in on that patient. Okay, so no clear answer answer on that. uh, all right, let's change it up a bit. Uh, so let's say our patient doesn't have any vascular injuries, but does have what appears to be an esophageal injury on CT scan. All righty. So an esophageal injury. Uh, as we mentioned before, it's critically important to treat an esophageal injury as quickly as possible. Um, this is because you want to avoid the morbidity that comes from an uncontrolled infection in the neck and chest. Those are the worst If the injury is seen on CT, I would take the patient to the OR. Uh, If I needed some more information about the location and the size of that injury, I would definitely do an EGD first. All right. So how would you get down to the esophagus um, surgically? How would you get there? So as previously described, I would make that same incision along the anterior medial border of the sternocleidomastoid on the same side as the injury. Okay, so you separate the SCM from the strap muscles, Uh, you retract um, the SCM laterally, you open the carotid sheath and retract the IJ carotid and vagus nerve laterally as well, you go ahead and medialize the thyroid and the laryngeotracheal complex with your fingers, and you ligate the middle thyroid vein, the inferior thyroid artery, and the omohyoid muscle. Now, you're looking straight at the esophagus, or at least you think you are. (laughs) Sure. I would make sure that an OG tube is in place. This will help me identify the esophagus as well. Yeah. So the goose can be hard to find. Uh, so definitely an OG tube is, is there to help. So you got the OG tube in um, and um, you have identified the esophagus. What next? Okay. So then I would mobilize that esophagus bluntly. Um, I would take care to protect the vagus nerve, which is located anteriorly. Okay. 
So you do all that, but what if you can't identify the injury? This is where I would use an EGD again to look, and I could do a leak test at the same time. Okay. All right. So you do that, and this actually helps you identify the injury. It's two centimeters long, and it's full thickness. What now? Okay. Two centimeters long, full thickness. I would perform a two-layer primer repair. I would use absorbable suture. Um, and if I would, and while doing it, I have to remember this needs to be done without tension. Right. I would also be sure to expose the entire mucosal defect that's associated with that injury. And I may need to enlarge that muscular defect to make sure that I see the extent of the mucosal injury so I can debride any devitalized mucosa. Okay. So you're considering opening the muscle Mm -hmm. to make sure you see the extent of mucosal injury. Right. right. And are you going to close over a bougie or something like that? Yeah, something like a 40 French bougie. Okay. Help avoid uh, stenosis. Right. Um, It's also a good idea to create a flap out of strap muscle or sternocleidomastoid if the defect is large. And uh, this could also help prevent fistulization if there's an adjacent airway or vascular injury. Oh, and don't forget to place drains. Yes. Drains for sure. Okay. All right. Um, Real quick, uh, let's say this guy actually has a tracheal injury. Ah, tracheal injury. Okay. So um, tracheal injuries, I would approach in the same fashion, although depending on where that injury is, um, it may be better served. Um, I might place a, I might perform a collar type incision. Okay. As opposed to the... Right. The anterior sternocleidomastoid incision. Okay. Um, But remember, you can always extend that incision into a collar type incision too. Okay. You can uh, repair the trachea with absorbable suture, and same concept, use that muscle flap if the injury is large and you want to help avoid that fistulization uh, if you're near the airway or uh, vascular injury. Okay. And if there's concern for pharyngeal injury or damage to the larynx, uh, this is probably a good time to involve ENT, uh, as these patients may require specialized evaluation and management. All righty. Okay, Patty G, yes. you ready for a quick review? I absolutely am. Okay, so first, um, which patients should be screened for BCVI? And I would say there are four main groups. Those who have had high energy mechanism of injury and they have a face, skull, or C-spine fracture. Those that have had a really bad TBI all by itself. Those that have a TBI associated with chest trauma. And those that have had a seatbelt or noose across their neck. Second, remember that stroke rates following BCVI are as high as 8% for grade 1 injuries and up to 50% for grade 4 injuries. And then although there's no randomized trials directly comparing heparin with antiplatelet therapy for the treatment of BCVI, there are some small retrospective case series that suggest that antiplatelet therapy, including aspirin, may be at least as effective as systemic heparinization for stroke prevention. And lastly, blunt cerebrovascular injuries can evolve over time, and they also may completely resolve. So it's important to remember to perform follow-up imaging 7 to 10 days after the injury. Awesome. All right, my turn. So patients with penetrating neck injuries who are unstable go to the OR. If they are stable, they go to the CT scanner. The sensitivity and specificity of a CTA of the neck for vascular injuries approaches 100% but it's less for tracheal or esophageal injuries. And if there is concern for tracheal or esophageal injuries, additional workup needs to be undertaken. And last, it is critically important to rule out esophageal injuries early because increasing complications occur with delayed treatment. And this can happen in in as little as 13-hour delays. Okay, that's awesome. Well, 
This has been fun. That wraps it up for today. Please continue to follow the Big T Trauma Series. Thanks for joining us from all of us here at the Red Duke Trauma Center in Houston, Texas. Remember to dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.